Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the RAINS Retreat Guest Speaker Series. As you know, our topic today is Turning Points. My name is Ariel. I'm your host for tonight. In celebration of International Bikuni Day, we have a panel of speakers from the Sakya Dita WA Group. We have Vulnerable Cherki, who is leading our meditation tonight. Vulnerable Huiken, Sandra Henview, and Gita Mendis. Tonight's topic is caring for the earth, caring for each other. Sakyadita is dedicated to supporting women in Buddhism and helping them build connections locally. We are also fundraising tonight. Please look out for the fundraising box today. Before I introduce the speakers further, let me get into the announcements. First, we have the Friday night speakers for next week. They are Len Warren and Sue Lee. They are founders of the Pure Land Project, which focuses on those who would like to focus on spiritual aspects during palliative care at the end of life. Please note that Friday night guest speakers during rains will not be live streamed, so please come along in person. Every day during rains, Ananda Tilakasuri will be running a new Dharma Sutta discussion group. Please meet in the left-hand shrine room from 3 to 4 p.m. on Sundays. The next 8th precept day at Dhammaloka will be Thursday, 5th of October. To inquire, contact lucky at bswa.org. There will be a free Tai Chi class by Thomas too, organized by the Be Quiet and KFC groups. Meet on Saturday, 7th October, from 5 p.m. to 6 p.m. at the Dhammaloka Community Hall. On Saturday, 7th October, from 3 to 4.15 p.m., we have the next Introduction to Meditation class series. Meet in the left-hand shrine room. On Sunday, 8th of October, we have the Children's Dharma School recommencing at Dhammaloka. In the Dharma Hall tonight, we have the Beauty of Silence books, which are part of the fundraiser for Newbury Monastery. Please donate $20 cash for each book. They are, we are seeking volunteers for gardening coordinator and an architect or planner. Please speak to or email blueprints on events at bswa.org. Bill will be at the back of the hall if you have any questions about the voice referendum. Finally, please refer to our website or notice boards for all details for the announcements just shared. So before we go on to the meditation, let me introduce Sakya Dita. Sakyadita International is dedicated to women in Buddhism. The association was formed in 1987 at Bodh Gaya, India, under the patronage of His Holiness the Dalai Lama. It seeks to build community to benefit Buddhist women and nuns, to reduce gender injustice and awaken women to their potential. 
the Australian branch, was formed in 2015, and most recently, the WA chapter was established to help local women build connections. Now, may I invite Vulnerable Cherky from Higher Griever Buddhist Centre to lead our guided meditation. Thanks, Ariel, and it's great to be back here again. Um, first of all, I'd like to acknowledge the Wajok people of the Noongar Nation who have maintained this country so that, uh, you know, for time immemorial, so that we can meet and gather, meditate, pray, and listen to each other. So in terms of caring for the earth, I was requested to uh, lead a meditation on loving kindness, Tibetan style. So <laughs> I'm not quite sure if it's Tibetan style, but um, I'll lead a meditation and just guide us through. So in that sense, of, um, I've been very fortunate to have been um, guided by uh, indigenous elders, women elders, in the practice of Dididi, deep listening, which is a deep listening to the earth. So that also informs my practice. So here, as we sit, first thing is to feel through the soles of your feet, through your legs, if you're sitting on the floor, through your um, pelvis, whatever's in contact with the chair, with the cushion, with the floor. And feeling a sense of groundedness, connection to the earth below in such a way as we don't have to s sit up, but the earth comes to support us, providing a sense of stability, a sense of deep connection, deep-rooted connection into the earth, a deep listening, a sense of safety, reliability, which is a foundation for our meditation practice. You know, the Buddha said, be strong like a mountain. So we have that meditation posture of having that sort of breadth of connection with the earth and then tapering up. In this way, we bring the energy down from where it often is, up in the head down into the lower part of the body and just connect that with your breath, letting the weight of the pelvis relinquish to gravity, the weight of the legs, feeling that connection. allowing the spine to be in its natural position such that if we took away all the muscles it would just be in a straight alignment not forcing but by maybe tilting the pelvis forward to allow it to be in its natural alignment and around that central axis all the muscles can soften relax be completely at ease bringing our 
awareness into the space of the bodies, withdrawing from all the sensory input we engage in throughout the day. It's giving the senses a break. The eyes can just rest in their sockets, so we don't need them. The muscles can be soft, relaxed, we don't need them. The sense of being in a state of balance, comfort and ease. And in that deep listening, listening to our own inner experience, which is an experience of the mind, which is how we experience everything in the world. It's a deep listening. And we can think the outer elements, such as the earth, are connected to the inner elements, the bones and support systems, the muscles and so forth, the nails and hair and all the hard bits of the body. And the same with all the elements. So bringing our awareness to the air element, the breath in our body, which we can think about as an intimate exchange with the air around us, even with each other. You know, we breathe in, the outside air becomes breath, we breathe out and it conjoins again with the air around us. There's no real separation. And this air in the body is a healing life force. Bring energy to all our cells, all our atoms, all the molecules that make up our body, but particularly refreshing the cells in each moment. And bringing a quality of alertness to the mind so cultivating a relaxation and yet alertness. You know, it's Friday night, we can let go of, you know, maybe the whole week or the whole day of, of whatever busyness and just sort of drop it. Leave that baggage outside, settle into just being present here now with our breath and think, How wonderful, you know, that we live on and with such an ancestral land that has been cared for for millennia. By fellow human beings who understand that sense of custodianship, connectedness, interconnectedness, as Noel Pearson said this week, this sh we share, what we share is love. And when you think about love, we can think about the center of our chest, the heart chakra, which is the seat of our emotional experiences. We can feel that love at our heart like a warmth 
a softness, an openness to others. And feel that warmth of love spread throughout your whole body, tips of your toes, up to the top of your head, out to the extremities of the fingers, transforming every cell into like a bubble of love. And that love connects us heart to heart, quite literally, with each other. Not just with each other as humans, the animals, including all the insects, the beings in the water, the beings in the sky, the beings deep in the earth. We listen deeply, we listen with our heart. When we listen with our heart, the mind comes to a state of peace. So allow that to experience, to exude throughout your whole body, radiate a sense of self-nurturing, self-care, loving concern for yourself. Feel nourished by that. just as we are nourished, nurtured by the earth, just by we are nourished by each other. We think how dependent we are on each other just for one meal, just for one set of clothes, just for everything in life. Think how many other beings we depend on Think of their great kindness, sometimes even giving their lives for our meal, for our clothing, for our housing, and so forth. We can think of the kindness of all beings contributing to our well-being and we can think that in past lives, our past lives have been numerous and within each, every one of those, we've had a mother. You know, when we were an elephant, we had a mummy elephant. When we were an ant, we had a mummy ant. Here we are human, we have a mother. We've had people, maybe even more than one mother playing, the person playing that role, or even extended family support system. Think of the kindness of those who have supported us to, to live well, to be well. From a very young age where we couldn't support ourselves from birth, we wouldn't be alive if it wasn't for the kindness of those beings in our life. In this great country, we wouldn't be here if not for those who cared for and nurtured over millennia, over generation, generation, for this country, for the environment, for each other.
So we are all equal in wanting to share the love, share our desire for having happiness, for well-being, to be cared for, to be comfortable, to be at peace. That what drives us in whatever aspirations we have in life, however we live that out. And where more we can cultivate that sense of caring, loving concern for others that has an open hand, that has an open heart. better we feel, the happier we feel when we can extend that to others. And it's so powerful in a world increasingly dominated by anger, by fear, by anxiety, by conflict. quite amazing that we are here as Dharma practitioners, as seekers of truth, cultivating our true nature, our Buddha nature, which is everything that is positive, the most powerful states of mind, which is our contribution to world peace. to nurturing, caring, concern for each other, for our community, for our country, for the world. And that sense of interconnectedness is shared by our indigenous brothers, sisters who say when I am well the community is well. When the community is well the culture is well. When the culture is well the land is well. And so it goes around when the land is well, the culture is well, the community is well, I'm well. Everything interconnected, no barriers to our sense of caring, our sense of loving concern for others. So allow that same energy radiating out from your heart, from your heart chakra, from the center of your chest, out towards your friends, your family, to the environment around you, sense of healing, loving, caring, concern. That ability to deeply listen to others and to respond from the heart. And extending that out towards others you know, throughout your community, throughout the neighborhood, 
thinking of what others are doing this evening and wishing them every happiness a mind in happiness in peace doesn't cause harm cannot possibly cause harm it's just not there in the mind rejoice in our own physical, mental, emotional, spiritual, cultural well-being. And wish to extend that to all those we encounter. The limitless heart of love of care, of compassion. May all beings live in peace. May all beings be happy. May all beings be healthy. May all beings live with comfort and ease. May all beings experience every joy, everything their hearts desire. May all beings live in peace. May all beings be happy. May all beings be healthy. May all beings live with comfort and ease. May all beings experience every joy, everything their hearts desire. May all beings live in peace. May all beings be happy. May all beings be healthy. May all beings live with comfort and ease. May all beings experience every joy, everything their hearts desire. May I be responsible for this by myself alone.
So holding on to that sense of loving connectedness with others, with the environment, with the earth. Gather together into your heart chakra whatever benefit has been beneficial from this meditation so you can come back to that at times when the mind gets disturbed, gets agitated, we can sit in silence with a loving heart. So I'm surrounded by flowers, and I think some of the Sakudita sisters are going to join me here. So I'm not on my own. No, we won't leave you on your own. No. <laughs> <laughs> so Wanju, Wanju, Nonokot, welcome, welcome, everybody. Wanju Monich Yogas. Welcome, awesome women. Wanju Monich Mamane. Welcome, awesome men. And I'd like to just acknowledge that today we are meeting on Noongar Wajak country. I'd like to pay my respects to the elders. Aboriginal elders of the past, the present, and those that are emerging. And I'd also like to just say, I've got a few little metaphrases that I'd like to share. Nala Kwapwen, may we all be mentally happy, may our minds be free and happy. Nala Kwapwen, may we all be physically well and healthy. Nalakat Nadajan Pirakrakwap. May we walk this earth with ease. Nalajanjan Kulinikwap. May we walk this earth with ease. Nalajarabanunokno Janju Kadijan Wankan. We are glad you're coming together, laughing, chatting. Bula Karajan, joint joint, Barajani. Let's share more knowledge together. So I'd like to introduce my Sakya Dita sisters. Welcome the wonderful, venerable Wei Khan from the Zen tradition and the Sanyata Meditation Center. Venerable Tabdan Choki. Choki from Hyogriva. Sorry, my spell checker always calls you Choki. 
Chalky, I am Chalky. or whatever. <laughs> Our dear friend Gita Mendes. And if I haven't introduced myself before, my name's Sandra Henville and I chair the um, Spiritual Education Group. And last year, um, well, the reason we're gathered, you know, here today is to celebrate International Bhikkhuni Day. Um, in the Theravadan tradition, our um, monastics are in rains retreat at the moment. But in the Zen tradition, we are out. You are out. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and we the Tibetans are out too. We're out. <laughs> we have three months from April to July, Lunar New Year. Mm. Yeah. So we are out for a month already. Mm. I don't think it works. Oh, does it work? Hang on. Press the button. Yeah. yeah. Um, you just got to press it. Here, you take mine. Never mind. <laughs> so, International Bikuni Day. So, in 2011, um, Susan Pembroke, um, who was the former president of the Alliance for Bikunis, decided it would be a brilliant idea to hold a global grassroots effort to learn about our Bikuni Sangha. <laughs> And she suggested we do this <laughs> by holding an International Bikuni Day. And um, yeah, the aim, and aim being to, to come together, and she had a very simpler, simple formula for this. Basically, to have women come together, lay unordained, just to have a general discussion about the women we admire. And she saw it as an opportunity for friend raising, not fundraising, friend raising, friend raising, to introduce people to the Bikuni Sangha. So that's what we're doing tonight. We're just going to have a general chat, and we've got some, we do have some pre prepared questions, but it's an opportunity um, just to learn a bit more about the different traditions. And one thing I thought of, um, Venerable Choki, when you were talking, when you were giving that beautiful meditation, is that one of the things I heard Noel Pearson say when we were listening to um, his talk as part of the the um, mm. effort to to support the voice, he said there's three stories. So there, and correct me if I've got this wrong, but there's there's a story of indigenous culture in this country. There's the story of colonialism, the what, you know, and you know, for good or bad, you know, the structures of governance, various things that have been brought to this country. But the third story is the most powerful story. Well, the third story made me sit up and think, and that is about the beauty of multiculturalism, the unity of diversity. And I think that's kind of what we have here tonight. We've got two very, three traditions, Buddhist traditions, but quite diverse. So one of the things I noticed when we came in, we all paid our respects in different ways. So I thought maybe we just start by, you can tell us about, about the Zen version of Reigns and, and 
what it is when you come and pay respect. Like because the Theravadan tradition, I'm you know I chant the free refuges and I bow three times, but I noticed you ladies did something different. Yeah, that's oh, working. I think it worked. Does it work? Yeah. Yeah. First of all, I think that uh, it is new to me to say Bihuni Day. <laughs> we did not have Bihuni Day. We mm. have the monastic day mm. in our tradition because when we have the retreat from April, which is the birthday of Buddha, the mid-April, I'm talking in terms of Lunar New Year, mid-April until mid-July, and when we end our retreat, we call it monastic day, and that is a joy day. And that is the first thing. And then lately, I think I've heard of uh, people, particularly the Bihuni, Thek Maha Masabade day is uh, just celebrate her. Um, not birthday, but I think the day she um, reached Nirvana before Buddha, and we call it like uh, the uh, our patriarch uh, day, uh, because our Bikuni's patriarch is Mahabasabade. And then talking about the uh, way to respect Buddha, I've seen the Tibetan uh, way to respect Buddha when I was in India, took a pilgrimage, and I to me, I think this is the best, the perfect or the correct way to pay respect to Buddha. Even we learn that when we respect Buddha, we have to put five uh, yeah, into the earth to pay respect. But somehow, Chinese people and Vietnamese people, we pay just uh, prostrate. And I'm sorry, I cannot prostrate anymore because mm. of my knees. Mm. <laughs> I should prostrate down three times for the Buddha. And so I got shocked by just only making bows. So that is because of my, I don't want to say so, but that is my own age. <laughs> I used to come here and I pay really uh, uh, prostrate, but now I have to cut shocked. And I really pay respect to the way the Tibetan did it is, we call it the correct way. We appreciate that. <laughs> well, let's open the debate early, shall we? <laughs> <laughs> it's a venerable jokey. I noticed you did the full prostration. Yeah, um, I know what it is to have perishing aggregates as you get older. Um, don't have to learn that lesson, know it very well. So it's very interesting that Venerable says the correct way. <laughs> of course, we have a lot of um, teachings around the prostration. Um, and the interesting thing is, um, for a number of years before I had a knee replacement, I, um, I couldn't do full prostrations, but when I um, went for rehab and I said, what are your goals? And I said, to sit cross-legged, this was after knee op, sit cross-legged and do full prostrations. 
And I said, but I'm not going to be able to do either of those, am I? Guess what? I can do both now. And so <laughs> that's, been, that's been really reassuring. But I can't do a lot. Like we do, like, you know, we have practices where we do like 100,000 or whatever. Not every day, <laughs> obviously. But I can't do a lot of the long prostrations. But from the teachings that I've heard, a prostration, I mean, what's the main thing about a prostration? is that the mental prostration. So we say physical, mental, verbal, in the, you know, so prostrating with body, speech and mind. If we're able to do a full body prostration, what we do is also visualise that, you know, either as many replicas of your own body or your own past lives or... You don't, I mean, not that we can remember past lives, can't, can't remember most of this life. But or, or remember or thinking about all other beings arising in human form and prostrating along with you, covering as many atoms of the earth down from from here down to the other side, whatever's on the other side of Perth. I'm not sure. Um, and then when we're coming up to have a sense of bringing all beings up up towards enlightenment or up towards the Dharma, or however we want to. Visualize it. So there's a lot of visualization in our tradition that goes on like that. That's to maximize our efforts of that. However, you know, this is a prostration. You know, if we're wanting the physical prostration, can be two hands, can be one hand. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I, I was thinking of a uh, monk friend of mine who is in a wheelchair. Doesn't stop him prostrating. He prostrates in his wheelchair. He doesn't throw himself on the floor because he can't throw himself back up again. But he's still prostrating so that the main thing is, is mental. And I remember somebody who was catching a plane and they were doing that collection of the 100,000 prostrations and they did, if you um, leave out a day, you've got to start again from one. So <laughs> he didn't want to do that. So he wrote to um, Lama Zopa Rinpoche and said, uh, what to do? I'm catching a plane. And they don't let you lie down on the floor. <laughs> and so Rinpoche said, oh, do mental. And then he realised it's much harder to do mental than it is to do physical. And so um, when we come into um, a place where there's images of the Buddha, we also think that also doing prostration, we have our hands with the thumbs inside the fingers so it's like we're offering a jaw so we're making offerings to the Buddha so there's many things around that and then there are the benefits of prostrating like you'll have a gorgeous body you'll glow with golden colour many many (laughs) different wonderful things will come as a result so (laughs) maybe future lifetimes (laughs) yeah so However we prostrate, um, or whatever tradition, it's, we're all honouring the Buddha, paying our respects. Yeah. Gita, did you want to say I think uh, staying true to the Theravada tradition, which is keep to the basics, keep it simple. (laughs) So I would say um, the way we use the prostration, the bowing to the Buddha, Dhamma and the Sangha, 
is really saying, I go to the refuge, go to the Buddha for refuge, I go to the Dhamma for refuge, I go to the Sangha for refuge. And of course, we tend to repeat that three times. So I like that version, but I think, yes, for you, it's the whole thing is a meditation, whether, mm. however you do it. Mm. It's the mind and cultivating that um, meditative mind. She's got another one. And it works. Well, it is International Bhikkhuni Day. And our, our friend, our founder, Susan Pembroke, said that we should gather and talk about awesome women. So let's talk about Yasodhara, Yasodhara the Buddha's wife. Because, I mean, I really, don't, I really don't see much written about her. And I often wonder about the amazing women in Buddhism. I mean, I know that she gave birth to the Buddha's son, Rahula. I know that the Buddha um, left. Like, he made sure that you know, her and her son were happy and healthy before he left. But then it all gets a bit sketchy, and the most I know about Yasodhara is really from the um, Yasodhara's lament kind of poems, which are often used as funeral chants. But she was a pretty amazing lady. She was very strong. She became an arahant. Well, she became a nun, then she became an arahant. Is there any no, stories you'd like to share or? Or comments? Um, or comment? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so when we think about, like, because, you know, people say, oh, um, you know, uh, the Buddha left her with a son and, you know, abandoned the family and so forth. So we can read it in that context. But when you see the context of the family, though, it was a comfortable, it was a comfortable life, as you, as you said, Sandra to, you know, actually take care. But if we also um, look at the fact that at the time of the Buddha, you know, the Buddha was, was quite radical in the fact that he opened up the um, teachings to all castes, men and women equally, which wasn't something that was done prior to that. It was like you were of the Brahmin class, you were male, and then you had access to spiritual teachings or, or spiritual pursuit. Um, and if you're of other classes, you certainly didn't have that. So the Buddha really encouraged that. And then when we hear about uh, Yasodhara or Gautama, um, you know, that uh, like the first, first bikini, um, as a very powerful person, and as we were discussing earlier, the fact that the, her, not her in that manifestation, but her in previous lives, and the Buddha in previous lives, had been together many lifetimes. And I see the, um, these sort of what I call power couples today, to that, Dharma power couples that are just like, 
you know, I've, I've met a couple and I go, well, he's just brilliant and she's just brilliant. What sort of conversations do they have? You know, what sort of life do they have? And often they're off, both of them, you know, doing Dharma teachings, giving discourses in their own right, um, separately and just seem to, you know, have, well, I don't know who has realisations, I wouldn't have a clue, but, you know, very, very powerful um, couples in the, in the Dharma. And so I'm sort of inspired by that example of Yasodhara and the Buddha to think of all those and to think that, you know, you've got to think at the time of the Buddha. That was quite radical for women. I mean, I was part of the, you know, 70s feminist movement and we thought we were radical, right, 2,600 years before. <laughs> um, yeah, there was a lot of that. And the fact that um, the Buddha fully ordained women, I mean, I find it interesting. It's Bhikkhuni Day because just like traditionally in the Theravadan tradition, this is what we share in the Tibetan tradition, of full ordination, not, um, well, as we're taught, it, there's big debate about whether it's permissible or not within our traditions, or whether, like in the Tibetan tradition, it says, oh, you know, it never was established in Tibet and so forth, therefore we can't. And so... Um, going away from power couples, you're looking at someone like Jetsuma Tenzin Palma, who really set up an alliance for um, non-Himalayan women because, you know, when she worked to establish a nunnery, DGL, in, in, in for um, Himalayan women, so Tibetan, Nepali, Indian, and so forth, she says, now they're taken care of. So now we've got to look at, and particularly looking at, at nuns in Southeast Asia um, and in the Western, so-called Western world, um, but all women of, of, of Buddhism, because the Buddha had equal regard for all, but then since that, because of our cultural belief systems and traditions, that sort of patriarchy, you know, sort of thing has, has crept in. And it wasn't from the teachings of the Buddha, you know. So um, when you look at that context at the Buddha's time, even though the Buddha was quite open um, and allowed all, you know, you've got to think, as, as a woman at that time, it wasn't like you were immediately empowered to <laughs> do all these things and yet you know, we have these two very remarkably powerful beings. And before pretty long, not didn't take long for many women to get ordained, so we had 500 women ordained very, very quickly at the time of the Buddha. So, um, I mean, it makes sense. If the Buddha said anyone, any being with a mind, we say in Tibetan, Sem Chen, a mind possessor, any being, with a mind, which includes all the ants and the cockroaches and any being, it has the potential to be a Buddha. Maybe not as an ant or cockroach, but you don't know who's masquerading as an ant, because he may already be a Buddha. Yes, but I, I did read that Yasadhara and Siddhartha were, were deers. Yeah. <laughs> They've taken many forms. Well, you, when you think the first teachings of the Buddha were at Deer Park, yeah, <laughs> that makes sense, doesn't it? We kind have we have that in the Tibetan tradition. I don't know if you've seen 
Um, you know, always films seem to start with the image at the top of a monastery with the deer and the Dharma chakra. Mm -hmm. And so we have that, like many of our centres have that as a sort of symbol because that was the first turning of the wheel. And just remind us what the um, term Sakyadita means. Sakyadita means um, daughters of the Buddha, mm. daughters of the lineage. So again, we're talking about these great, amazing women, but particularly talking about the nuns. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, we'll, we'll move into some juicier questions now. Um, so, obviously, there's a lot going on at the moment <laughs> in the country. And when we look at mainstream news and social media, it would seem that morality and ethical conduct have become unfashionable. I mean, even on my little corner street in Mount Lawley, some of the local kids had made these little posters, vote yes, and they'd stuck them to their fence. And within a day or so, someone has come and spray painted no. And I thought it was pretty mean to do that to the kids' um, artwork, let alone the, um, you know, the, the just unkindness there seems to be in the community at the moment. And, you know, what we've learnt from the Buddha's teachings is that he was very much about living in harmony, approaching life with the right intention. And as he was saying, Venerable Choki, he was quite radical in transcending the caste system to recognise the voice of all peoples, all castes in ancient India. So how do we, we take that lead to deal with this plethora of confusing views in society at the moment. Like, even when it comes to spray painting kids' artwork. <laughs> Gita, I know that you have something you'd like to say on this. You've been very busy, you and Bill, um, promoting, um, making sure that we're just all fully aware of what this Yes campaign means and yeah, I'll, hand um, it to you. I, I'll take your first comment first, mm. which is that uh, morality and virtue seem to have become unfashionable. Mm. So yes, it does seem that way. Um, when we look around, we look at around us, the various news media, social media, whatever, um, and we even refer to this era as the post-truth era. I mean, it's, uh, how baffling is that, you know, <laughs> that it's acceptable that you don't have to even speak the truth, you know. Anyway, so when you said that, I thought about it when you were discussing this before. The bottom line is that in terms of the Buddha's teachings, we need virtue or sila aspect more than ever right now. So virtue remains a foundation of our practice and has done so for the last 2,500 years. And um, for those new to Buddhism, um, just to explain that for lay people, virtue practices is encompassed in the five precepts 
that we follow as a daily practice. So what are these five precepts? Firstly, to avoid killing, avoid taking of life. Secondly, to avoid stealing. Thirdly, avoid sexual misconduct. Fourth, to avoid false, hurtful, and divisive speech. And fifthly, to avoid those substances which intoxicate the mind. And so this training has to be developed to overcome the unwholesome roots of our actions. And the unwholesome roots are greed, hatred, and ignorance. So we, we see plenty of that. Um, in a way, greed and hate are promoted as somehow useful forces in society, which, you know, we only have to sit back a little bit to realize that it's not. These are not helpful. But by practicing the five precepts, what we can do is we develop the wholesome qualities, the wholesome roots of action to grow. And these wholesome roots are generosity, goodwill, and wisdom. So this is the path of purification, and this is the cent central to the Dhamma practice. The other thing that's mentioned in the suttas is that observing these precepts, it brings security to your society, to your community, to your family, and peace within oneself. So these five precepts are described as a gift. It's a gift to yourself and a gift to those around you because this promotes a secure society, a peaceful society. So I think that's important to keep that in mind. Um, and there's another thing that we uh, don't often talk about, or I don't hear often mentioned, is that according to the Dhamma, the world is guarded by two forces, called Hiri and Otapa. Hiri means moral shame, right? That is to be ashamed of performing evil or unwholesome acts. This is the first guardian of the world. And the second guardian is moral dread or fear of performing evil or unwholesome acts. So I remember when I first read this thinking, oh, shame and fear, we, we don't value those. We, in fact, it's the opposite. But the Buddha says these have to be present as guardians of the world. And of course, we see now, people say we have lost our moral compass. Yes, we have. The greed and hatred have taken over instead of fear and dread of these sorts mm. of things, right? So the, those two guardians and the five precepts kind of go together to protect our society, right? So, at least if we ourselves can make an effort to cultivate the five precepts in our own lives, we will see benefits to ourselves and others. Um, and just as an example, when, when these things don't, when they're not observed, like for example, um, avoiding false speech. You know, we saw this amazing example in the US not that long ago, when the president claimed that he had, the election had been stolen, 
And this lie was perpetuated by all the media. People to this day believe this lie. And we say, well, it's post-truth era. And this lie led to the invasion of the Congress. It mm. led to the death of people. A lie did all that, you know? So I think we have to be careful about that in this era and the similar sorts of things happening with people spreading misinformation even about what's going on right here about the voice referendum. People who know better saying things that are totally false. But how can you debate all of these things? You can't. You have to be responsible for speaking the truth yourself. So that's um, about the so, Venerable Waikan, would you like to, do, do, do you have a view you'd like to share? Like, how, how do we um, take refuge when everything just feels so chaotic? Like, how do you get to the truth, your own truth? You just take, um, <laughs> I tell you the reality. You talk about harmony and uh, actually education from the parents to the children. And nowadays, I saw children not only shoplifting, but they have, like you said, shame or fear. They have no shame and no fear. Apparently, they are very proud, very brave and very proud and very strong. They dash in your house, took away things that they like. Maybe they observed that before. And then they run out, and guess what? The parents are sitting in the car with the engine on and ready to get them in. And you are not, in this society, you are not allowed to touch the child. You cannot hold the child, and you have to let go like that. So when I meditate, they just come in, take everything, and they went out. So just bye-bye. Oh. What can you do? You are not rushing after them or just asking, okay, we have to share half and half, throw me back the, the, throw back the purse or whatever. You can take the content. Yeah. Because what we need is education and teach the parents on the value the value is now, like you said, unfashionable. There's no value at all. So what we do is how to have the harmony. Well, you, you are the victim. You don't do that to people, but you are the victim. So you have to let it go. What do you think, Venerable Choki? You've been very active in the community. Hmm. You've always been very active in the community. You see a lot of people in prison, so you've seen you've seen where this all ends up. What's, <laughs> what's, tell us what you think. Well, I was thinking of the Buddhist um, teachings that I am returning to a lot these days, and it's in the Golden Light Sutra of when we allow. Um, when world leaders, because the Buddha said kings because they were the power, powerful leaders of the land, when they allow criminality in the land, when they don't, um, well, what we'd say today are not that 
moral compass are not those uh, role models that we aspire to. I'm not saying all world leaders, but we're seeing increasingly people who seem to be, um, you know, have mental uh, disturbances in those roles. And so, you know, as the Buddha said, in, at those times when there's no, um, well, you know, um, I guess ethical, what do we call it, constraint, um, then crops cease to flourish. The imbalance of the elements occurs. Um, and so, and then the, even nutritious food ceases to be nutritious. It sort of sounds a bit familiar, doesn't it? And so we see this degradation of the environment, we see the degradation of values. So in, in our organisation, which was uh, FPMT, which was uh, founded by Lama Yeshe, and um, in the early 80s, he, he passed away in, I think, 83 or 84. And so in the early 80s, he said, we have to get rid of the R word religion, not get rid of religion, but the R word, the mm. thing that prevents us connecting with each other when most people don't follow a religion, even more so now, they don't identify with a formal religion, but there, there is a sense of spirituality nonetheless. But what, what, what he was saying was, we need this education, we need ethics education. And so um, we have within our organisation an ethics education that then was developed, it's called 16 Guidelines, which are basically about values that, that we hold, it's ethics. And, um, you know, uh, so that was, that was something when I was thinking about that vision, I thought this is huge, this could transform the world because it's about a value-based education. So having, um, that it's not necessarily tied to any religion, mm -hmm. but we, as a society, we have these shared ethical values. And if we look at the context too, in terms of what's happening with this world system, the fact that you know, this world system came into existence and it's now in the period of going out of existence. And so this is predicted as by the Buddha as a time of um, degeneration, so five degenerations. Degeneration of, well, we see the environmental de degeneration. We see the degeneration of um, society in the sense of more and more conflicts and at the beginning of COVID, when the Dalai Lama was talking about on the back of um, COVID, we will have um, conflict, and Lama Zoparumshe actually said, conflict at every level from macro level world wars, which we, of course, we're experiencing. Well, not directly, I'm not experiencing, but down to interpersonal relationships. And he basically said, everyone at war with everyone. So this becomes a degeneration of the mind, doesn't it? It comes from that. The mind that is disturbed. It's also a time of more increasing mental illness, increasing physical illnesses. We see that happening. Um, and so at such a time, two things. One, the challenge of practicing Dharma is so much harder, right? It's so much harder. It's like, what do I do in this situation? Where's my wisdom to deal yeah. with this? But if we practice, you know, 
single point of concentration develops what I discovered um, for myself was a real sense of resilience, a sense of inner strength, just from that meditation. And, and then the Dharma teachings and so forth on top of that, that then anyone of any faith tradition has a sense of responsibility for everybody else. It's like I'll only look after other Buddhists or Buddhists of my tradition or what, I don't know. Buddhists don't think like that. We think, you know, that it's, it's the care and consideration of the world. And so those practices, however small practices we do in such a time where it's like society is really, um, I was about to say unhinged. Is it unhinged? <laughs> Not quite yet. It's going to get worse before it gets better in the prediction of, you know, coming to the end of this world system. So there's the imbalance in all the elements, and this is really, really crucial. Um, and so whatever practice we do at such a time when there are so many world challenges is so much more powerful. And I just find, you know, the simple practice of smiling, engaging with people in conversation, and even in the situation of children um, shoplifting or so forth, it's like, well, where does that cause come from? Is that family living in poverty? I mean, we're talking about everything going up in price and so forth. So it's like we, we need to get the root causes of what's causing this in, in society and address those root causes. And that's where the Buddha, you know, all the teachings of the Buddha are about that. Let's get to the bottom of this. And so the we have similarly like this, we, we call it shame and consideration. So with these mental factors, the shame is you, the shame one is you restrain yourself because of the values you hold and because of the ethics. You know, it's just like, I couldn't do that because it's against my ethics, right? My own ethics. Um, and that's where we see that degradation of, of that very much in society. But the other part of it is the consideration for others. So out of consideration for others, I'm not going to go around fighting and killing and doing all the non-virtuous actions because I, you know, um, but also how, how we are perceived by others as well. So these have had historically as constraints, but we see that seems to be breaking down in society as a whole. I mean, what I found bizarre, this was in New South Wales, was when they introduced ethics education. The ethics education was to happen at the same time as the people had their um, religious education or, you know, whichever tradition they were following or whichever one they wanted to go to. And it was like, they're oppositional. It's just like, how can they be oppositional? <laughs> it doesn't make sense to me. So we've even lost a sense of what it means to, to live an ethical life. Mm -hmm. But because it's so much harder is not a reason to give up, you know. Yeah. So I'm just wondering at this point whether anyone in the audience would like to ask a question. Yes. Uh, Bill has the roving microphone, or I've got them all now. We've got all the mics here. <laughs> mm 
Oh, we just get our AB under control. It is a heavy mic, yes. We should move closer. We just all want to watch Bill run around the hall. <laughs> Um, when it comes to when it comes to progressing with um, meditation, um, how does like say how would you define good meditation versus bad meditation versus in in your different schools of thought, and how does one not necessarily become better? but just be, go deeper at letting go through meditation. Mm. So my example is like, usually just cause I have a busy morning, I like to meditate for five minutes. So I'll put on like a little timer, like at, uh, you know, when I just get up and I'll just meditate and focus on my breath for five minutes. But I felt that that's become very repetitive of just like, oh, I'm focusing on my breath, I'm doing that. How would you go deeper? That would be my question. Like, how would you just simply go deeper and get into a more of a state of focus? I'm talking in terms of the Zen tradition, the Vietnamese Zen. In our Zen, we don't we don't call good or bad. There is no duality. Meditation is meditation, and you can feel whether it is uh, uh, good or bad. <laughs> because the purpose of the meditation is to let go of all the, uh, what do you call it? On the dirt in your mind. You clarify, you clear the mind, you cleanse it. So like today, uh, you meditate for five minutes or 10 minutes or half an hour or two hours. And you realize that so many thoughts raising appear in your mind. So many, so many, so many, one after another. Your work is to recognize it, appreciate it, and bye-bye, let it go. Do not follow, neither suppress. And that is you watching your thinking, and just filter, filter, filter. That is meditation. And then when you go deeper is when hundreds or thousands of thoughts come to only one or new. You get it? Like today, when you sit for 10 minutes, you might have uh, 100 thoughts. And I consider that you are number one. Very good, because you don't sleep or doze. 
because you are aware that the thought arises and you take it and you throw it out. Tomorrow, you sit for another 10 minutes and you recognize that 99 thoughts come up and that you improve until one day you get no thought arise and that is the deepest meditation. So there is no good, no bad, just only you realize aware, completely awareness. All right? Okay, thanks, Venerable. So, yeah, that is a, it's a good. <laughs> so, um, it's a very good question, actually. I think we all have that question. <laughs> so, the Tibetan word for meditation is gom, gom. And what gom means is to familiarize. So, we familiarize with many things. One is what's going on in the mind, the mind that says, oh, focusing on the breath is so boring. I did this yesterday, I do it today, I do it, this is so boring. And I want some, our minds want something exciting. So this is the mind, the untrained mind that looks for something else. This is what we're doing most of the time, you know, in, in society, we live in a desire realm. Even we don't desire something, you just go to a shopping centre and it's half price and only today closing down, etc. And suddenly you think, oh, I'll get that. What we've been instructed to do by, you know, our spiritual directors, go into the shopping centre, look at what your desire does but don't purchase, you know, <laughs> just watch the mind. So we could call that a meditation, an active meditation. So in your, so in terms of a meditation practice, good or bad, the good or bad determines what our, is determined by what our motivation is. In fact, everything, our motivation for everything in life. Is my motivation for this? So before you sit down to meditate, of having the motivation for your meditation to, um, whether it's to calm your mind, whether it's to be able to improve focus concentration, whatever your motivation is. So for me as a Mahayana practitioner, it's going to be may you know, something like maybe the practice be of benefit to myself and others. So it's a very simple way of going about it. You know, maybe to me and all those I encounter today. So the aspiration is to develop some quality of the mind that then throughout the day I can take that into the day. And, you know, when we're talking about... So when you're talking about focusing on the breath. So as you're... So we, we, we take a time to first of all just settle our body in a posture that's beneficial, in a space that is conducive. 
So the environment supporting us, just like here. Many people have meditated here. Nice environment for meditation. We have that association. And then a posture that's going to support that for us, and maybe you've, you've got that posture, but that the, the body doesn't meditate, it's the mind. But we have to allow the time for the body to settle. You know, when I first started to meditate, I felt like the body's going, what the hell are we doing here? You know, what's this all about? And then over time, by doing it, you know, whether it's the same time of the day in the same place over and over again, it becomes easier for the body to settle, then for easier for the mind to settle. So then on your, when, you're, when you're focusing on the breath, there can be many things that we can choose to focus on. So we can focus on the breath in the whole of the body and that is particularly, it's a sort of general focus, we're ever aware of sensations of the breath in the body, we bring our attention there. When we notice our mind gets caught up with thoughts because it is the job of the mind to think, we don't want to stop it thinking, but at that time we want to direct the um, our thinking mind towards simply the breath. And the fact is we've all had a lifetime of not, of just following wherever the mind goes. So it's like harnessing that energy just on the breath. So we can do that if we focus on that within the whole of the body and then as you breathe out of letting go, tension, tightness, distractions in the body, distractions in the mind, we're not forcing anything we're releasing the energy around that, right? Around, the, we're not trying to stop the thought that says this is boring. We wanna release the energy around that thought so that we can focus all that energy simply on the breath. It's almost we have to tell ourselves, yes, yes, it's boring, but it's good for me. I, you know, not really, it's not boring. Which the breath is something that's chosen because it's a fairly neutral object. Like it's not something we have a strong desire for or attach or, or aversion for. However, we do need to breathe to keep alive. So I'm pretty attached to my breath. <laughs> but it's it's also something that um, as we do settle down more that we can notice more subtle levels of breath. So, you know, starting with being aware of the breath in the whole of your body, which helps particularly for relaxation. And then we might go to the abdomen and be aware of the rise and the fall of the abdomen. So instead of the whole of the body, I'm focusing it down on a smaller area, but that also brings my energy down towards the ground and so that really helps for continuity <coughs> of attention, stabilising the breath, right? So, or not, the breath's fine. We're not trying to do anything with the breath. Stabilising our attention on the breath. And we think about the whole continuity of um, the breath in. So every moment of the breath in is a new moment of breath. It's a new experience. So these are different ways we look at it. And then there's the turnaround to the breath out. Have you noticed in your, all your meditation? 
there's a turn around to the breath out and then every moment of the breath out, staying present to the very end of the breath out. Not In our mind we tend to jump ahead to the next thing, the next thing. So really, and if you notice that at the end of the breath out, you might notice there's stillness there. And that's exquisite, to rest in that stillness. Then the next breath naturally arises just like the waves come in on the shore. It'll naturally arise. Your body knows how to breathe itself. You can be aware of your body breathing itself. You can place your attention lightly on your breath or you can allow that to absorb your whole mind. So we can approach it with different qualities. And then to refine that, this is where the key really is, is at the opening of the nostrils of just here, um, little triangle here above the upper lip. So we're not following the breath inside, we're keeping it there. If I you know, put my fingers there, you can put your fingers there and breathe in and out, and you can feel the breath, right? But when I'm meditating, it's much more subtle. The sensations around the nostrils is much more subtle. And so to notice any flaring, tickling, noticing the cooler air coming in, the warmer air going out, the volume of breath throughout, you know, the breath in and out. Um, if it's even, smooth throughout, if it's rough. The Buddha said, um, you know, if the breath is long, you know, you attend to the breath being long. If it's short, you attend to it being short. But it can only be short in comparison to long or long in comparison to short. What's short, what's long. So we can um, look at it in many different ways. And then we think, oh, that's, you've made it much too busy now. Fine. Just bring your attention back to the breath and then any time there's distractions, it's this quality of, of mindfulness of the breath and then the quality controller introspection or vigilance that notice, oh, I've just been, you know, gone on to thinking about what I'm doing the rest of the day. Oh, that's right, I was focusing on my breath. So the first thing we do when we notice we've our thoughts have gone elsewhere. The first thing you do is relax. And then you release that energy. And then you just go, okay, refresh. Refresh my attention on the breath. So, that it, it's, so there's a lot of discipline with bringing that. And the more we focus our breath at the nostrils, over time um, we notice more and more subtle sensations. The other thing about the breath is that it's intimately connected with our emotional state. It's physiological, we breathe in and out. But what do we do when we get a shock? We hold our breath. What do we do when we feel fearful? We have a shallow breath. So by focusing on the breath, we're not telling our mind to calm down, but that becomes an effect, a quality of that focus of attention. Right? To really deepen the practice, so when you feel that you've got quality control for five minutes, then add three minutes on, right? Or might say three minutes too long, a minute, right? So it's about quality control. So when you feel confident of that, add a little bit more time on and, and maintain that quality control. There, it won't be like it gets better and better and better like this. That doesn't happen. 
there'll be ups and downs because things are happening in our life, things are agitating us more and so forth. But I've found that maybe what you're thinking of as a bad meditation is when you can't pay attention and the mind's going ratty and so forth. I've found no matter how ratty, it's still beneficial to, to meditate. And that just check up if your day goes better. You won't notice it after a, you know, a few times of meditating, but over time, am I not being so easily thrown by you know, things around me? Am I not so reactive? Am I actually getting a better sense of well-being? Am I actually you know, feeling better? You know, it's not a cure-all. It's not an answer to medicine. <laughs> you know, it's not. Doesn't replace any of that. But that sense of, of well-being to really go further and further requires being in retreat conditions. But we can all maintain a, a daily practice and just you know use all those tools and extend you know the time when you feel comfortable to do that. Yeah, there's always, just listening to you, Van, it reminded me of um, a couple of things that have stuck in my mind over the years, and I can't remember who said this, but they said, you know, it's not, thinking's not the problem. It's not about stopping the thoughts. The art is to know your thinking, mm. to know your sitting, to see the moment-to-moment experience as it is. And then the other thing that came to mind was, um, pretty sure it was Aya Medanandi. She's wonderful nun in, in Canada, northern Canada, I think. And she talks about this concept of the prison of self and, and un understanding the degree of selfing that goes on, like when we beat ourselves up to say, oh, that's good, that's bad, I shouldn't be thinking this way. La, 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 la. And the Buddha, correct me if I'm wrong, ladies, said, you know, everything I've experienced in this life, I've experienced in this fathom long body. In other words, it's all perceptions. It's entirely fabricated. It's, we're a collection. I think I turned myself off, no I didn't. But I found that was, that's quite helpful to, to remember that everything I experience is in this fathom long body. No one out there is doing it to me. It's my perception that's creating the story, that's creating the prison of self. It's my choice to break free of that. And that's what was wonderful about the Buddha's teaching is that he truly believed that, that anyone has the capacity for enlightenment. Anyone has the capacity to break out of the prison of self. So that something that's always kind of stuck with me. So we're at 8.58 on the Dharma Hall clock, which sort of brings us to the end 
And unless there's a burning question, there is, there is. Come on, I haven't I seen you for ages. Ask your question. <laughs> Um, thank you for tonight. Um, it's not a question, it's just a, um, a memory that from the newspaper, I think from yesterday, the daily, the morning paper, the West Australian, that the government is um, implementing new um, education towards respect and, um, you know, the virtues that you're talking about. So it's going to go through all the public schools and you know it's a wonderful. So the government is is doing something, and and I think and I think that's great that we spoke yeah. about that tonight. Yeah. So thank you. Mm. Great. Okay. Well, unless there's any further questions, um, I'd like to thank our guests this evening, Venerable Waykan from the Sanyata Meditation Centre, Venerable Tubden Choki from Hyagriva and Geeta from BSWA. <laughs> and of course, um, yeah, it's just wonderful to have something like Saki Adida that brings women together like this and allows us to have these chats. I mean, we would chat anyway, it wouldn't be any <laughs> stopping us, but <laughs> it's good to have a forum like Saki Adita. Can I just say? Yes, please. Um, in terms of Saki Adita, so we... Um, we, in, in WA, uh, we um, have these gatherings. We come together each Noongar season and um, we haven't planned our next one. <laughs> but if you want to be on the list to join us, it might be... So when's the next one due? October? Anyway, sometime in the next two months. Oh, well, it's the season of Juba, is it? The season yeah. of the young? Yeah. And it's soon coming into summer. Yeah. So I think we should have a picnic. We might have another sit-on <laughs> sit country. Sit-on country. Okay. What Kings we've been Park. doing is going up to Kings Park for each of the Noongar seasons and we sit on country. So we you know where the War Memorial is and there's a gazebo just across the way, nice grassy area. We come together, we sit there, we enjoy a meditation together. Um, and then we, well sometimes we have a, have a speaker sharing experiences. We had um, Makula McKenzie talk to us about chaplaincy which was wonderful. And yeah, we just enjoy each other's company. It's, it's a wonderful thing. So the email address is sakiadita.wa at gmail.com or just reach out to me and I'll, I'll put things on Facebook so everyone sees that. We've also got a um, fundraiser tonight, so if you feel inclined, feel free to... Uh, so Um I'm on the... Uh, national committee and we decided um, as our next like we previously fundraised for the nuns in Sri Lanka 
and so forth and managed to get the money directly to the nunneries. And so now we're thinking of, yeah, as uh, a support for Australian um, women who are going to study overseas. So um, as much as we're able to support, we support, we were able to support a couple of people to go to the um, Korean Sakyadita conference, which was in June. And so, yeah, so now we've decided for however long it might be our ongoing support for Australian women who are studying overseas. Okay, Ariel. Um, we, we're at, we'd like to finish by paying our respects to the Buddha Dharma Sangha, each in our own ways. Because mm -hmm. I think like the initial welcome, we probably all do it differently. So <laughs> let's finish by paying our respects to the Buddha Dharma Sangha. Yeah, let's transfer the merits. I vow that the merit and virtue from this will go everywhere, reach everyone, all of us, and all sentient beings, so that we will learn and practice the Buddha way. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Yes, if you <laughs> you've got it. Um, may the precious body mind, not yet born, arise and grow, and may that born have no decline but increase forevermore. Lexo, Lexo, Lexo. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Thank you, everybody. <laughs> and Ariel has a special gift for our speakers this evening, a token of our appreciation. Thank you. May I present uh, the first token to Venerable Cheki? Vulnerable Huiqian. Tukita. I'm actually pretending to be a sheep. <laughs> to Sandra, of course. Oh, thank you. And I would like to give a special thanks to everyone who helped behind the scenes from the decor to the planning of the mm. event to the special AV support. Thanks so much for coming to celebrate International Bikuni Day with us. It's the night of the super moon and we're all gathered together to celebrate women in Buddhism. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you. Sadi, sadi, sadi. Lexo, lexo, lexo. <laughs> oh, you're becoming a Tibetan. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I would like to offer these flowers to whoever would like to take some flowers home and maybe we can do an impromptu offering to the Buddha of the remaining flowers. I'll see how many vases are in the back because... 
They came from my birch and they... I have a very small house. I would like to share the flowers with all of you. <laughs> so thank you, thank you, thank you.